Hey, how's it going, everybody? We are back with another edition of the Ad Podcast and uh, a super exciting guest today. We have Dave Kaufman, who is the Senior Director of Global Marketing at Meta, who uh, oversees all of the marketing efforts around their VR and Metaverse strategy, mainly around the Quest product. Uh, Dave has a really interesting background in which we'll get into today. Uh, over seven years now, I believe, at Meta, so bucking the trend in the tech industry and probably at Meta in general as far as the marketing teams are concerned. But uh, he also had an opportunity to work in the Obama White House, and uh, he was part of the team that originally launched Google Glass. So he's been in the augmented, mixed virtual reality space since the beginning of the uh, technical side of this space and as headsets and uh, and different types of wearables started to be uh, developed. So Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, you got it. So, hey, I already just touched on your background a bit, but I always like to hear a little bit of it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So do you want to maybe walk us through some of the salient points and kind of how you've uh, navigated this really interesting career at being at the forefront of the wearables and the VR, AR, and uh, uh, MR space. Yeah, absolutely. I love walking through it in a conversation because it feels like I've planned out each step so perfectly. <laughs> it's mostly been falling from one thing to the next, but um, I tend to say that I'm a rare case who was interested in a career in marketing from very early on. So starting mm -hmm. in around fifth grade, I would say, I was pretty uh, set on either playing shortstop for the New York Yankees and replacing Derek Jeter one day when he was ready to retire, or uh, going into the world of advertising. Uh, I was inspired very young by the absolute campaign from the early to mid nineties. Mm. Uh, had all the absolute ads up on my wall, which in hindsight is a weird thing for a fifth grader to have a lot of vodka ads on their wall, but was just super interesting. <laughs> early on um, really in the world of advertising from that time. So fast forward many years later, started my career at Google, spent much of my time at Google working on Google Glass. So I was there from the early days with all the glitz and glamour and incredible headlines about it being the next iPod and the next big thing. Was there through the, uh, let's call it the eventual crash and burn, or I'm sure there's a more delicate way to put that, but Sure, we'll talk about it, but learned a lot through that experience, not just about AR and uh, mixed reality and being early in that space, but just working on teams, excuse me, through failure and things essentially not going to plan. Um, I left Google uh, after Glass and went very briefly to a hardware startup in San Francisco called Halo Neuroscience, which was building kind of mm -hmm. wacky uh, neurostimulation devices for elite athletes. We were working with the US Olympic team and with a number of different professional sports teams. It was a good experience to move from the huge operation that was Google to really eight people in a room trying to figure out a hardware startup and get everything off the ground. So it's interesting experience about just being in a scrappier environment and really every dollar and cent mattering. Um, from there, I took a unexpected a career turn after getting the best uh, pitch from a recruiter I've ever gotten from someone in the Obama White House with the phone call wow. asking, have you ever thought about using your skills as a marketer to serve your country? Just a really good pitch. Um, so I joined a team called the US Digital Service, which President Obama started after, if you remember back with healthcare.gov, when that whole policy nearly went wow. off the rails because the tech infrastructure underlying it didn't work. Um, so I did 
comms and public engagement, which was kind of a synonym for marketing, uh, essentially landing the president's tech uh, narrative uh, as part of yeah. his achievements mm -hmm. and trying to get more people in the tech industry to serve, whether it's their local government or their federal government at some point in their career. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, I've spent the last seven years since the Obama administration at uh, now Meta and have been in Reality Labs, which is our uh, part of the business focused on really building the future of connection and human presence uh, that entire time. So have the privilege of running the marketing teams for our VR devices, our VR content, all of our bets around the metaverse, things like Horizon Worlds and avatars. Uh, so I've had the really unique experience of working on all this stuff from the time that it was kind of like, hey, why is Meta in this space? And then over the last few years, from rebranding the entire company around it and being very direct about why we're in the space and it really being at the forefront of everything. So a bit of a meandering path. I don't know that I planned on a federal government, obviously leading my way back to mixed reality and virtual reality, but it worked in hindsight. That's awesome. Uh, I love a quote that you gave in an interview, which was, um, you focused your career on three things, which is working with people you enjoy, taking bets on ambitious products and uh, products that excite you and prioritizing environments where you never stop yeah. learning. So I think you, uh, you've been very intentional in that, even if it seems like a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a left turn to go into the government piece. Yeah. I, I think that people tend to look at careers as this like perfect ladder of this experience sets up the next one. And if I deviate from that, I'm going to jeopardize everything. And, uh, those three factors or those kind of three litmus tests that I've used really have been the barometer for how I make career decisions. So I remember even going back to work for the Obama White House and leaving you know, the tech industry at the time, I had zero concern about what it would mean for my resume or for my long-term development. Just deep down, I looked at those three things and said, like, do I really think that working for the federal government and working for this president, like, that that's gonna derail my career? Probably not, but I've had a ton of advice from people whose advice I respected and candidly people's advice who I wasn't looking for, period, on, no, once you leave tech, it's impossible to get back in. You're going to be seen as a bureaucrat who doesn't understand. And of course, you know, there are bad career decisions you could make, but I'm not a, I'm not a everything happens for a reason spiritual person, but I tend to believe if you at least have a criteria by which you're making career decisions and your decisions pass those bars that you set for yourself, things tend to tend to accrue or at least compound over time in the direction that you want them to. Yeah, no, I love that. <clears throat> and I wanted to um I wanted to ask you briefly about the White House experience because um, a prior guest on the podcast was uh, Keith Croc, who was the founder of Ariba and uh, sold that to SAP eventually and also started the company DocuSign. And uh, he most recently was the Under Secretary of State under Mike Pompeo. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks, I feel like in the tech industry, you see them kind of getting in the government space, maybe in the late stages of their career, because they feel like it's a opportunity like the recruiter so amply pitched you to serve your country. And uh, it's an opportunity to maybe give back in a way, not necessarily working at a nonprofit, but you know, you're helping your country. Um, could you tell me a little bit about 
your motivations uh, in kind of fulfilling that call that the recruiter asked you for. Um, but I'd also just love to hear, you know, what's the cultural dynamic of going from fast moving tech industry, even spending time at an even smaller startup in the tech space, and then going into the government space? Like what's the culture shock uh, in and around an assignment like that? Yeah, I can hit on all that. So to give a little bit of background. So the team that I joined um, called the US Digital Service is founded by the president after healthcare.gov legislation that passed, now known as Obamacare, essentially could have failed because the tech infrastructure that was required to get it off the ground didn't work. And when you think about American history, it was really the first time that a policy, whether you agree with it or not, was going to fail from a policy perspective because you couldn't build the tech needed to get it up and running. Which is a really, you know, is this really unique point in time where you had government and technology and software coming together in a way that it never had before. So at that time, the president, I tend to say, bait and switched a number of people from Google and a few other tech companies to come in, what was pitched as a few weeks or a few months to essentially rebuild all the infrastructure behind healthcare.gov, get it up and running so people could get healthcare. Once that team finished that work, the president's pitch was, why don't you stay? We'll call it, we'll turn it into a startup and we will turn this team into a group that goes into other parts of government and fixes other things that aren't working. And you can just imagine there are plenty of those within the federal government. So these were really bipartisan efforts and just going into things that are not political in nature and simply services that America needs that were held back by technology limitations. So an example was working with the VA Veterans Affairs. There, I don't remember the exact number, but a veteran who came back from war, who was then entitled to certain benefits, when you went on the VA's website, they had to look through, I think it was 800 phone numbers and something like 400 different mailing lists to get the form to the right person to get the health care they earned by serving their country in battle. Ridiculous oh, wow. state, especially when you compare it to if you wanted to buy a bag of flour, you could take out your phone, hit a button, it'll be on your doorstep in an hour. And that just seems like a huge disconnect in user experience and uh, user interfaces mm -hmm. and you know customer thinking and design thinking. These things that just weren't inherent government. So very long story short, the team would kind of be the SWAT team that would go into other parts of the government and help rebuild these services. And it kind of became this mantra, if you can buy a book with one click on the internet, a, a veteran should be able to get their health care as easily, an immigrant should be able to process their paperwork as easily, etc. Um, so when I got brought in, I obviously am not an engineer, I'm not a designer. The remit was kind of, we want to do two things. We want to tell the world what the president is doing in the tech space, which is kind of the world of comms. And we want to make sure that people in the world of technology see this as a thing they should do in their careers, really take this tour of service or this tour of duty to their country, whether it's three months or six months or simply volunteering with their local government to put their skill towards things that really benefit people who need it most. So I think yeah. the big difference, um, I think what people tend to conflate is governing versus politics. And there's a difference between the politics of running for office and running a campaign versus government, which again, regardless of your views or what party you are, the purpose of the government is to benefit the people. And I think that the mm -hmm. focus on government and not the politics side of 
how do you simply put your tech skills towards helping people who need help was a very rewarding call and something that I took a lot of satisfaction getting to work on. One of the things I know myself and others who are part of USDS take pride in is from being founded under President Obama through the Trump administration, through the Biden administration, not only does the team still exist, but its funding and its headcount and the investment in it has gone up over time as well. Uh, you can probably count on one hand the number of things that survived, forget from a policy perspective, but just from a team perspective, from uh, Obama to Trump, let alone to the Biden administration over the course of however many years it's been. So that I think has been indicative of what that team was able to accomplish. To your question on um, culture, night and day. Um, the <laughs> president at the time did a good job knowing what it would take to recruit tech people. And one of the things he could offer is money and stock options and free lunch and all the stuff that people associate with Silicon Valley. But there was a real sense of build the culture in a way that you want and try and intersect it with government. But government, and it's not a criticism, I understand that things work differently when you're serving 300 million people in a very different way. Very slow, very political, very bureaucratic, getting used to things like where you sit in a meeting room based on your rank. Frankly, never something I would think about going into a meeting at Meta is like which chair that I pick. So all that kind of stuff took a ton of getting used to, but uh, proud of what the team accomplished. I think I had less gray hair in my beard before the year in government. Uh, definitely sped up my aging a bit, but uh, in experience, I would still recommend to anyone who works in the tech industry and just feels that they want to give back in a way. I love it. It almost feels to me like uh, the Peace Corps or Teach for America, but like something that the tech industry can, you know, apply their skills. So sticker behind me somewhere, but it was a team unofficial motto. I was calling it the Peace Corps for nerds. Um, <laughs> The perfect parallel because it was started under President Kennedy, still exists today. And that's what we hope that the digital services 50 years from now as well. I love it. Well, cool. Well, I want to dive into your experience running uh, the VR and the um, augmented reality sector for uh, under Meta on the marketing side. So, um, you know, one of the questions that seems like is addressed almost every single year is, you know, how do we achieve scale amongst these uh, virtual reality, mixed reality, uh, both from a hardware perspective, I think is probably the main um, barrier to entry is like, where does somebody come in uh, through the hardware side? So just curious, what are, what are the biggest challenges that you guys are working on at Meta right now from the perspective of scaling uh, the, uh, the Quest platform essentially? Yeah, the biggest thing continues to be relevancy is, is the word I keep coming back to is how is the product relevant and exciting for a diverse audience? Uh, and I think that's something that the VR category has had a hard time with historically. So I don't know the percentage, but I think a lot of people have tried a VR headset, whether at a friend's house or at a trade show or in a store and gone, wow, that's really cool. It looks like I'm flying or it looks like I'm on Mars. And then you go, would you buy one? Would you keep using it? You kind of go, well, no, I don't know what I'd use it for, but like, it's really cool. So we've been focused on essentially for the, the length of working on VR, but really over the last five years has built on, been on not just building technology for technology's sake, but building experiences that are 
additive to people's lives that are valuable and relevant to different people's interests. So VR as a category really got started with the gaming world and still is very mm. heavily tied to gaming, which I think is a good thing. And we've created the kinds of gaming experiences that you can only have when you're fully immersed in a unique environment that isn't the same as clicking buttons on a controller when you're fully in a different place. We've also seen huge growth around things like fitness. That was a big one that started to pop for us during uh, the pandemic. So when you think about mm -hmm. the big barrier for many people working out, it's simply not liking it, not enjoying the experience, not wanting to go to the gym, not liking riding a Peloton. So what VR has enabled, especially an app, uh, Supernatural, which is now a part of Meta, is put on the headset, takes you to an incredible location, let's say a, a glacier in uh, Greenland, and you can work out in this incredible environment and it feels like a video game where you almost at the end of it go, oh yeah, I didn't even realize I was working out. Now I'm in a deep sweat and my heart rate's up, but it kind of just felt like a video game. So fitness wow. has been a big point of relevancy for us. And then one of the other big areas of growth, especially in the last couple of years has been the idea of social experiences, which obviously intersects a lot with uh, Meta's mission and our vision for the space is what does it mean to feel like you're in the same place as someone, even if you're 3,000 miles away? So enjoying the conversation with you, but we're on a flat 2D screen and it's not the same as if we were sitting in the same room or if we were you know, in the same space, period. Um, and that's really the limitation of technology today. I don't think VR is fully there yet, though there are incredible experiences where you're doing things together, whether it's simply hanging out and watching a basketball game or it might be playing ping pong, even if you're on opposite sides of the country, you can picture a day where you and I would never even consider using a video chat or a phone call for a conversation like this because we want a degree of presence and intimacy and you want to be able to pick up on my body language when you ask a question. So you can imagine putting on a pair of a pair of glasses or a Quest headset and it immediately feeling like we're in the same space. So. There's already a lot of progress against that today. And that's what I don't want to call it the killer app because I don't think there's a single killer experience. But I do think there's something that will be quite magical. And the idea of is there someone or people who you want to spend more meaningful time with? This is a way you can finally do that. And the laws of physics kind of bend to it a bit as well. Yeah, I love it. Next time we'll have to do the we'll have to do the follow up episode like uh, Mark and Alex Lieberman did, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I think um, I think you hit on a really important component of you know just the podcast space, which I think is going to be a really interesting uh, way for adoption to happen in this particular category. And you 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 tell me your insights on this, but you know I whenever possible, actually try to do this podcast in person. So a lot of times I'm uh, recruiting guests that are in San Diego for conferences, or I'm traveling to uh, people's offices as long as it's drive time. Like if it's Los Angeles or Palm Springs, that um for the right guest from time to pack up a, a very specific you know kit of um of uh oh excuse me it looks like i just had a camera malfunction give me one second all good
All right, I'm just going to switch cameras real quick. Sorry. No problem. I mean, it kind of underlines your point perfectly on being reliant <laughs> on cameras and rigs and setups. Exactly. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, it's, um, you know, uh, reality meets uh, meets providence, right? Yes, so, exactly. yeah, I mean, just like that's an example, right? Uh, I mean, this I've troubleshooted this camera a thousand times, but the battery probably went out or some, something happened with the camera. So there's an element that I've got to travel with all this equipment to whatever location I'm going to in order to make the uh, uh, the show's production value as high as possible. And then the other component of that is I don't know what the environment's going to be like when I get there. You know, sometimes the offices uh, don't have a podcasting room. They don't even have a quiet room in the whole office that, you know, is suitable for this type of a production, even though it's not that of intensive a production. So I think what's exciting about uh, doing podcasts in the future through Quest, at least what I saw, you know, when Mark has demoed it on some of the podcasts that he's done virtually um, you can control for all those scenarios, but you still get the closest example of that human in-person chemistry component where you are, uh, like you mentioned, being able to quote unquote, build a relationship because some of those other human cues that you get, whether it's eye contact or, yep. you know, smiling or all the different things. So can you talk about, um, how, you know, maybe that Mark and Alex interview that kind of broke the internet originally, uh, demoing the product. Can you talk about how that is maybe intentional in your marketing strategy and how you guys are thinking about uh, tapping into the podcasting market and production space, uh, not only from a target segment and a vertical, but more specifically, because if everybody adopts it in the podcasting world, then that'll be a lot of free advertising. Yeah, that is true as well. Um, I wish I could take credit and say that that's been perfectly engineered for the reason you just said, because of how much uh, free media will lend from the podcast space. But in yeah. general, I think it's podcast is definitely a piece of it. But the main reason that we are interested in this space, and if you rewind however many years ago, about a decade ago, when we got started in the VR space, people are saying, well, why is Meta doing this? Like video games, social networks, I don't understand, keeps coming back to the same word, which is a sense of presence. It's the thing that you can't get, whether it is from existing social experiences or existing technology, is that sense of feeling like you're not just in the same room as someone, which is kind of a technical feat, a big one at that, but the sense of actually spending meaningful time together. So meaningful time might be you and I on a podcast having a worthwhile conversation. Meaningful time might be me watching the Knicks game with my dad, even though he's 3,000 miles away in New York. It might be simply playing a game together and the meaningful time is what's not sent, but it's us taking down an enemy together, the body language of how we're interacting. All of that is really, when we talk about the metaverse as a concept, the future where we see the internet going is being richer, more personal, uh, more anchored in a sense of presence and feeling like you're able to spend meaningful time with people despite the limitations of time, space, physics, however you wanna call it, which I know sounds quite lofty. But yeah, I mean, from a podcast perspective, I'm, I, you obviously relate more than most, but people also, I'm sure, listen to a ton of podcasts and can probably pick out and go, oh, I bet those two people are in the same room because the host just kind of made a joke about the way he like wiggled in his chair to that question. And that must not be what he wanted to ask. And there's, this, you know, we've all spent years, it's cliche to talk about the pandemic, the pandemic. I don't think anyone would argue 
oh yeah, being on a video call feels like being together. And that seems like right. a big tech problem to solve, but more importantly, a big human interaction problem to solve. And that's honestly what got me to Meta in the first place years ago now was this pitch of what if we could build technologies that make distance disappear was also pretty good wow. uh, pitch at the time going with the White House mm -hmm. one, though the White House one might have it edged. Yeah. And that was really appealing <laughs> to me as someone who grew up on the East Coast, lives on the West Coast, you know, sees friends and family a few times a year, but it's not the same when you say, oh, let's jump on a weekly Zoom to catch up. So that's what was meaningful to me. And I'm excited to see more of that vision come to life, partly in the podcast space, but also in really everything else that we're doing, having this social and presence component to it as well. Yeah, very cool. So uh, going back to the scale uh, idea, um, Forbes predicts that VR headset market will expand by 47% this year. A large part of this is be being driven by Quest 3. Uh, what are the major innovations in the product that you feel are going to uh, generate additional adoption this year? So I think there are a few key things with Quest 3 conveniently uh, next to me on my desk. Um, nice. The first is the introduction of mixed reality to the product, I think is a huge unlock for both the approachability of putting on a headset, but also the types of experiences you can have. So very quickly, just to kind of get into the, the tech side and the jargon a bit, virtual reality being the sense of putting on a headset, being fully transported somewhere else and being immersed in a different surrounding. So let's say you put on a headset, it feels like you're in a spaceship, you no longer see your room, your floor, your ceiling, your dog, you are somewhere else. What Quest 3 introduced is mixed reality as well. It's the first uh, accessible consumer headset with mixed reality. So what that means is when you put on the headset, it's like looking through a clear set of goggles. You still see your room, your space, where you are, you're not taken somewhere else, and you can start to interact with digital objects in your room as well. So let's say instead of being in a spaceship and seeing it orbit Mars, you might now see a spaceship crash through your living room ceiling and the debris from your ceiling start to, start to fall on your coffee table. That spaceship can then land on the floor and you can walk up to it and start taking it apart, even though it obviously isn't there. That's a made up mm -hmm. example. There are lots of really interesting things developers have already built for MR from playing a tabletop board game with someone who's not in the same room as you uh, different types of video games where you're shooting at things that are hiding behind your coffee table or ricocheting bullets off of your mirror, things like that. And then simple experiences like building something with Lego on your desk or on your table, even if you don't have a full Lego setup while you're with when you're on the road or whatever it might be. So that first idea of just mixed reality, I think, A, makes the headset feel less foreign at first when you put it on because you're still in a space that you recognize. And B, just opens up a whole other world of experiences that start to combine the physical world and the digital world in really interesting ways. And I think that creates a lot of scale or a lot of opportunity around what experiences developers will build and what types of people, what use cases people then be interested in. So I'd say those are kind of the first two big ones is what mixed reality brings. The second is around accessibility. So we as Meta have obviously been about building products for billions and billions of people. And when we look at mm -hmm. the VR space and the mixed reality space and everything we're doing with the metaverse, the, the vision is exactly the same. So we've been very focused on how do we build absolutely incredible experiences 
but how do we make it possible to get them to as many people as possible? So this, the week we're meeting is a good week for this. Uh, our friends in Cupertino have entered the space as well with their first headset. And I've gotten a lot of questions that and genuinely see it as an exciting time for the space that more people are getting interested, more developers will be building. But when I look at the product suite that we're offering, we're being very intentional where our price points have been around 299 to 499 versus this being a three, four, five thousand dollar computer that's for a very small group of people. And especially as we were wow. just talking on, we talk about the importance of social connection and presence and enabling these experiences that bring people together. That's something that we want to get to as many hands as possible. So for all the incredible tech innovation, which there is a lot of, and all the incredible things that developers are building, this part of accessibility and making it a product that as many people as we can get to afford, at least where we are for right now, really is something that we think will allow us to focus on scale in a meaningful way as well. Yeah, that's cool. And then, you know, you just did a great job of kind of jumping in the definitions of mixed reality, virtual reality, and augmented reality, which was going to be a follow-up question of mine. Um, do you think that having these three different you know, reality modalities, I guess, or these different categories within the product. Do you think that eliminates uh, some of the folks that have maybe had an early VR experience? You know, I I worked on the uh, Dreamscape project uh, at Westfield. Yep. Um, we launched their we've launched their pilot store uh, down at the Westfield Shopping Center. I got to go to the uh, the prototype lab out in Culver City when we were working on the project amazing really cool early you know version where it was not you know consumer grade it was experiential like a movie theater an amusement park you know you pay money you come in and you go through the experience and it was cool that it had the 4d elements of wind and smell and some of those other features but i also found those early versions of vr products to be a little bit um you know more in they kind of uh anybody who experiences like vertigo or some of the you know, VR side effects were very prominent in some of those early, <laughs> those early uh, versions. Um, do, does having some of these other modalities like augmented reality, which is not fully immersing you in a foreign world, but is get basically overlaying things on your existing ecosystem the way that you would do on, say, an app, uh, does that kind of cut down on some of those uh, experiences that people may have had that make them feel claustrophobic or give them vertigo or give them the, give them any of those kind of uh, those symptoms, I guess, of the experience that has been a little bit um, maybe funky in some early editions of this. Yeah, stuff. I think there are a couple of things. One is just over time, the technology has gotten a lot better. The resolution has gotten a lot crisper. What we can optimize for mm -hmm. has gotten a lot more refined. So trying a headset, a Quest headset today compared to seven years ago is generally a very different experience. To your point, if someone had a bad experience, whether it's with a Quest headset or any headset years ago, that's still a challenge for us to overcome, which is a part of our strategy and really a barrier for us to be aware of. But there are significant tech advances and like most technology, I think will continue to get better and better, even if it's never 100%, because there will always be the reality of your body feeling like it is in a place that it is not. When you talk about Mixed mm. reality, though, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what I uh, really speak to around the, what I mean, the accessibility piece, not just being around price point or economics is it is a experience that is just generally a lot 
easier at first to get used to. Um, and that's not to take anything away from VR. There's an incredible amount of work still being done in VR, built for VR. This is not a, oh, we were once VR and now we're MR. Like, it's how these all come together. And I think these terms will also melt away once this really just becomes a, uh, a standard way of interacting with computers. But yeah, putting on a Quest headset today and still seeing your living room, but then seeing your menu pop up over it and then saying, I want to play this puzzle game. Great. Now the puzzle just landed on my uh, kitchen table and I can interact with it there. Absolutely. From a technical perspective, the kind of things or the kind of downsides you're hitting on aren't there because what your body feels is still that you are in your space. There's now just a thing that isn't actually there that you can manipulate and interact with and touch and play with. So yeah, whatever you know, section of our TAM is going to reject VR because the technology just doesn't agree with them. This is a whole other plate of experiences that people can build for now as well. And it's something that's we're obviously very early days, but it's exciting to see the little things developers already building and some of the big swings that people have taken already and taking advantage of this new technology and the form factor. Nice. Yeah. So we've talked about the idea that, you know, gaming is obviously going to be a forefront leader as, you know, video game experiences have always pushed them, whether it's a first person shooter, you know, the idea of a gaming environment has always been the most natural progression. Um, but in another interview, I heard you talk a lot about uh, workplace productivity and kind of uh, use cases for the office. Yep. Uh, some of the obvious ones are, you know, what we already talked about, making meetings more immersive and more real and uh, more conducive of building relationships. But what I loved also is uh, you talked about learning by doing, right? Um, I think so much of how we absorb and skill up, whether it's through watching videos or taking online classes or reading blog posts or going through even certifications in a college setting are helpful, of course, but you know, that's why they have laboratories, right? So you can learn by doing. Um, so can you talk about some of the uh, opportunities for scale through workplace productivity? Yeah, um, yeah it's a really- Touch on the learning component and any- Yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting space. And I think it's one that uh, often gets overlooked because there's so much, you know, call it sexy stuff going on around, you know, fitness and video games, the kind of stuff that is just inherently fun at its core, but work and productivity and learning and training is a huge opportunity and something we're already seeing a lot of traction around. So I tend to think about the workspace in a few different ways. So there is collaboration or simply kind of coming back to this word of feeling present in a way that is impossible today. So I'm sure you've been on work calls where the person's presenting the slides and it's like, God, get me out of this meeting. This is you know like watching paint, right? That's very different than being able to put on a headset, be in the same space, instead of looking at a slide about the design of the next you know, widget that your company is building, being able to touch it together, being able to manipulate it, being able to take it apart and see the exploded view, even if you have 10 different engineers in 10 different locations. So that sense of making our standard way of communicating, which is these flat screens, actually being able to be together and be collaborative is one big hotspot area. Uh, the second beyond moments of collaboration is also solo work. So 
when you are at your home office or in your office, wherever it might be, you generally have a setup with your keyboard and your monitors and everything perfected and your standing desk. But there's a lot of travel that goes into work for a lot of people. And most people are not bringing their home screen set up on the road with them. I've at least never checked a bag with a 30 inch monitor in it. And everyone knows that sense of being like, oh, I'm in this hotel room, I gotta get this thing done, I'm crammed over my laptop. What already is a really compelling experience coming back to the mixed reality technology today is being able to put on a headset, seeing unlimited screens in front of you that you wanna set up and essentially having virtual monitors come on the road with you or being able to, again, maybe wow. you're a designer, you're an engineer who's building something not have the prototype with you, but being able to see the thing in mixed reality and being able to make design decisions and product decisions with you know, 3D model instead of a flat 2D thing on the screen. So that solo productivity also becomes a very interesting space as well. And it's something that we've seen developers and businesses already invest in, but also people pack together just as individuals with the kind of baseline technology and app that's on Quest today. Um, and then as you hit on uh, a little bit, there's a huge amount around training, education, uh, hands-on experiences, et cetera. So we see businesses do things from uh, learning how to uh, fix a jet engine before actually touching it. Or if you're a surgeon doing a practice, uh, tricky surgery with a virtual scalpel in hand and a virtual patient, which obviously is not something you do in the real world. I don't think you get practice ones on practice runs on living humans to perfect your scalpel technique. Um, you also see stuff that is inherently scary, but real world of like, what does an active shooter drill look like in VR? Learning what it looks like. You have to prepare for the worst in a store environment, and what would that be? And how do you put yourself, you know, in a scenario that hopefully you're never in, but being able to recreate something that again you will never get from a manual or a 2D training or a training video. So I think that there is a massive amount of untapped potential on the work, the training, the education, the productivity space. But to what you said, it's not, you know, new technology versus old. It's like, I just think there's a lot of how do you enhance and bring things to life as well. And when you talk about education or training or learning, there's jet engines, but then there's also the high school student who wants to learn about ancient Rome and doesn't just want to look at the textbook and wants to go there. I think there's a ton yet to be built there, which, again, is what gets me excited. There's never a, a dull day on this team, and there's so much uh, ahead that hasn't been built yet. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I was uh, researching a gentleman that owns a special effects company uh, that is an huge innovator in using VR and the special effects world from a workforce pr productivity perspective. And uh, they showed some demo videos where essentially, you know, you can build out a Game of Thrones style world or like a, a scene inside of a movie. Yeah, and then you can kind of come in with the VR headset and move columns and add things, you know, in, in the real, in, in the virtual space. So it allows, you know, things like location scouting yep. and uh, 3D animators to kind of like tour these potential spaces before they actually go in and shoot it and kind of really get everything right and have that ability to kind of look and feel and and see as much of it as possible before they get on location. And uh, I imagine the things that are being done in 
VFX and special effects filmmaking are probably at the real absolutely. Edge. And it's you know it sounds a bit um, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's really just the phrase I keep coming back to is the idea of not being bound to the laws of physics. But pick any job, which might be construction worker, Martin Scorsese, or you know, uh, an engineer who builds microwave. I'm picking the most you know random jobs I can think of. If you said what would be beneficial to your work if you weren't bound by physics, which might mean being ten thousand miles away from a location, not being able to bring something home that you need to bring home, blowing something up and doing a practice run without actually burning your budget on it, the VR and mixed reality, it's why I think the terms and the technology are less important, really become this canvas for what would you build if there weren't limitations or what would you want to do? And a lot of that stuff is now possible, which I think is a, you know, a pretty exciting uh, canvas for us to be working on in the space. I love it. So uh, I want to switch gears uh, to a beat that you had as a marketer, um, which is, of course, on many marketers' bucket lists, which is executing a Super Bowl campaign for Quest uh, in 2022. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that process, uh, the insight that you came up with your agency? Um, you know, that's just a fun moment that not every marketer gets the opportunity to be a part of, uh, especially at the level uh, that you guys were involved. So do you want to talk a little bit about that campaign and kind of how it came together? Yeah, it was a definitely a bucket list moment and try not to take for granted having to uh, having been able to work on that experience. So rewinding all the way back to 2022, which seems like it was 10 years ago, uh, we had just rebranded the company as Meta which was obviously a huge shift for us. And part of that was really putting our bets around the future of the, inter in the internet. So the metaverse, VR, AR, really all of these technologies that had kind of been the skunk works lab of meta to the forefront of what we were doing into the core of the company down to the name of the company. So it intersected very nicely with the Super Bowl at that time for a moment for us to go out and not reintroduce the company per se, but really show on a big stage why we're invested in this technology, why Meta is the right company to be working on it, and what we think is the future benefit it will provide. So in hindsight, it looks like it all just you know comes together very quickly, and it was an obvious straight line. But with that moment at a company level, what was going on in culture a few years removed, or you know, only probably a year or so removed from the pandemic and everyone wearing masks and feeling disconnected from people, it became this nice moment for us to go out and show that VR isn't just around gaming or technology for technology's sake or for a certain type of person, but for the first time on a big stage to say, here's a story of how technology can keep friends close even when, you know, the world gets in the way or life gets in the way. It's just a story I think most people can relate to of getting older and not seeing their friends every day and saying, oh, I'll catch you in a few weeks and then saying, how did I not see you in a year? So all of that, really, the moment in time for the company, the moment in time and culture around the pandemic, and then just really the way that we saw people using the technology became this nice moment to go out and say, here's how uh, VR will help bring people closer together. So. It was an incredible experience. It also involved doing a putting together a Foo Fighters show in VR. 
pretty cool as well. Um, fortunately, I'm a Jets fan. The only thing that would have made it better was if the Jets were in that Super Bowl. It, it looks like it might be another hundred years till they achieve that as well. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was definitely a formative experience and something that I think has helped set the course for a lot of the tone of our advertising over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I think you mentioned in an article that part of the insight for the campaign came from a behavior that you were seeing in Horizon Worlds, um, which is the social sandbox component. Um, you saw a lot of people building places from their past. Yeah. And this really seemed to inspire the work and kind of the throwback to nostalgia um, can you talk about that insight and is that a trend that continues like kind of this revisiting of past, you know, kind of trying to relive moments from the past, so to speak? I think that the, the moment in time because of the pandemic, I think was super unique where people were just so craving connection and like thinking about the moments that brought them the most joy at just this, you know, absolutely terrible time. So Literally in Horizon, we saw people building their favorite arcade from when they were growing up or their favorite uh, whatever pizza joint from in town and recreating it as a place to hang out. Today, there's definitely people who still build that. I, I still think there's a degree of you know, nostalgia machine that can come with yeah, this blank slate of technology that can kind of enable anything. The main thing, though, that really was true at that time and that continues to this day is people seeing this as an opportunity to really connect in a different way. So I think one of the behaviors that a lot of people saw during the pandemic was people had downtime and they did things like having a weekly Zoom with their best friends. And then the pandemic ended and that kind of ended as well as everyone went back to their day to day. One of the behaviors we've not only seen keep up but grow a lot in Quest is people doing, is people moving their, uh, their social, uh, their social time when they are not co-located into VR experiences. Some of those might be nostalgic ones, like playing the new Ghostbusters uh, game for VR. And some of them are as simple as getting together in Horizon and actually not doing much besides walking around and hanging out and simply, you know, mimicking this idea of feeling like you're together even when that's not possible. So. I definitely still think that there's a nostalgia element that certain developers, certain builders bring in. I think the real thread, though, that's most carried forward is this idea of what if we could do something together tonight? Cool. Let's go do it. And that's what, again, personally gets me pretty excited about the technology. Very cool. So I want to hop into uh, my segment of the business on the marketing side, which is the creator economy. Yeah. Um, I'd love to get your take on, you know, obviously Meta is deeply involved in the influencer marketing world, mainly through Instagram being the most prevalent site in which influencer marketing transactions happen in the social space. Yeah. So you guys have uh, a huge wealth of creators already at your fingertips through uh, a platform like Instagram. You talked a lot about developers, but where do Additional content creators pull you as a marketer, uh, essentially marketing uh, the category and the hardware and the segment at Meta. But where do you see creators playing a bigger part in the ecosystem of actually, you know, creating things inside of the metaverse and not only driving awareness, in, but also helping build 
build the uh, uh, the vision, I guess? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there are probably like three key ways. Um, the first is probably the most straightforward is influencers and creators really being an interesting part of our marketing strategy. And for us, that doesn't just mean going to the biggest celebrity possible or the biggest number of followers possible, but seeing what actual people are building followings around within smaller, more niche communities around VR, and then you know helping add fuel to the fire that they're already building. So we've seen people build big followings around VR fitness or around different VR games and kind of become unofficial spokespeople within the community, whether it's on Instagram or Reddit or Discord, and being able to tap into those people and make them, you know, not paid spokespeople for the, the point of saying, hey, go try this hashtag ad, but pulling them into programs where they're trying games early and giving feedback and helping shape while also speaking to the community has been a really interesting lever for us to pull is one area. Um, the second is we've just seen creators utilizing our products to create content in new ways. So this has been everything from comedians using Horizon Worlds, uh, the uh, comedy club in Horizon Worlds, Soapstone, to go practice new material or to take their first chance at stand-up while you know, not wanting to first invest in a YouTube channel or going to open mic night. You, know, you see gaming creators doing interesting things. You see people around the NBA watching games and commentating in different ways. So I think you see creators experimenting with the VR product on how does this help them create more interesting content. There's the other, one of our other products in partnership with Ray-Ban, Ray-Ban Meta, smart glasses we've been working on uh, that allow you to stay in the moment, capture hands-free audio, hands-free video, soon utilize AI all in for those watching on video in a pair of glasses that look like a pair of Ray-Bans huge amount of creator interest again organically and we just saw creators a viral trend on TikTok and reels just capturing hands-free video in a mirror in a way that you can't do with a phone so there's also a ton around what creators are doing with you know not having to be anchored to a big camera rig or holding a phone to capture video as well um, and then lastly i think it's probably the piece which is most nascent what you hit on is how do creators start to build an economy in the metaverse so what does it look like to kind of expand your reach or kind of expand what you're doing into a virtual setting as well i think there have been experiments and tests and people starting to dip their toes into the water i don't think that there's a ton today that is uh, at massive scale yet but i think that really over the next year you're going to start to see more and more creators leveraging these technologies not just to create content for other channels or to create uh, or to promote new experiences, but to actually build new parts of their creator empire in new ways and new places that people can interact with. So making it up, but we, well, I'm not making it up. We've seen it. I think it'll become more prevalent is like meet and greets can be a big thing, whether it's a source of revenue or just a source of building followership for creators. Again, you will always be limited by how many fans do you have in the city you show up to or the event that you throw. What does it look like to start to enable virtual experiences as a part of that or leverage some of this technology as well? So as a nascent, but I, as you keep hitting on, I think an extremely interesting place for us to start to tap into over the coming years. Yeah, I love it. And uh, came full circle with the Ray-Ban partnership. You know, Google Glass didn't quite work out. 
spectacles did what they did and, you know, are no longer really part of the conversation, but it seems like you guys uh, hit that Ray-Ban partnership at a, a time where uh, the adoption curve is ready, uh, even on that side with the uh, the AR mixed, re mixed reality component. Yeah, absolutely. Very proud of the, the work the team has done on that one. And as simple as it sounds, there is a huge benefit when you say, how do we start by building the best pair of glasses possible? And to do that, mm -hmm. a good partnership or a good bet is to work with the best glasses producer and uh, innovator in the world and Essilor Luxottica. <laughs> and then when you say that's our constraint, it has to look great, it has to be comfortable, it has to be something you'd be proud to wear. What technology would you introduce to that to make life easier, to make experiences more interesting and more fun? That sounds very simple or very obvious. I think it's a, it's a very different approach from glass and a very different approach than others have taken. And to what you hit on, I think a ton of traction with people saying, yeah, if I'm picking between two pairs of Wayfarers, yeah, the one that can take pictures hand-free, take video, allow me to listen to podcasts, but still hear the environment around me. Soon you'll be able to use multimodal AI so you can take a picture of a menu with your glasses and say that might be in Japanese and say, what what does this menu have on it? Those are extremely beneficial technologies for a huge swath of people that doesn't get in the way of creating wearable technology that is actually wearable. Um, and again, going back to my glass experience, the word wearable technology has often meant historically technology you can technically wear, but who would wear it? Because it doesn't look like anything <laughs> you would wear. So yeah, even down to, again, for folks watching on video, down to the case design for Ray-Ban Meta, sure looks like a pair of glasses or a glasses case, which is just incredible product design to build something familiar and approachable that you know feels right to the right number of people. Yeah, well, smart. Um, the only glasses I wear are Ray-Ban well, aviators. I'll so see what the team can I, do, but yeah. I don't know the cameras and the the technology and circuit boards are small enough yet for the wire arms. But uh, <laughs> I'll keep you posted when when technology gets there. Yeah, no, but I think you hit on a great insight. You know, I would probably never have been caught dead in Google Glass. You know, my the CEO of my last company used to wear it out to parties mainly as like just like almost like a conversation starter and the spectacle ones were pretty tough too but i think the partnership with ray-ban you guys have hit on the most important thing is you know make it accessible to people who want to wear glasses and look cool first and let the technology enabled piece be the additional you know um added value so to speak or make it make it e easier for them to adopt it as a fashion statement in addition to a first adopter yeah, on the tech 100 percent Cool. Well, Dave, this has been a super exciting show. Uh, my last question to guests is always, uh, what are you most excited about in, say, the next six to 12 months of your role uh, leading marketing at Reality Labs? Uh, you know what? I say the same thing every year, but it remains true, is when you're working on such nascent technologies, every day kind of feels like make or break. Um, and I take that as a real motivator and a real point of excitement. But I really think in particular 2024 is going to be such a formative year for these technologies, not just for meta, but for the space as a whole. So at the end of the day, I'm most excited about getting the technology into as many hands as possible and as many developers building as many incredible experiences as possible. When I look at that, it's only January 17th and I see the roadmap ahead. 
there's a lot of that to come. So unfortunately, I can't leak too much of it, but watch this space. I think it'll be an exciting year for the, the experiences that are coming, but also uh, for our, our hardware lineup as well. Very exciting. Any last things you want to plug or let people know where to find you? If uh, they sure. want to connect? LinkedIn, probably the best spot. Dave Kaufman on LinkedIn. Besides that, check out meta.com slash quest and we'll see you, uh, see you in VR. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show again today. It was a fascinating conversation to learn more about your career and how you guys are approaching marketing the uh, VR segments uh, over at Meta. And uh, we'll be excited to see what you Absolutely. do next. So thank you so thanks much for having me on. So yeah, thank you. And for those of you who are following along at home, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening or watching today. Uh, if you would be so kind as to give us a five-star review, if you enjoyed the show, that helps us discover a wider and larger audience each week. And most importantly, if uh, you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Dave today, uh, feel free to share it with a colleague that you think would get some additional value from it. So thanks again, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Talk soon. See you next time.